0: He's going to deliver a sermon today that's jumping back into the Luke series. We took a couple-week break there, but we're going to be in Luke 18 today, and we're going to talk about the rich young ruler. Pastor Rex, take it away. Awesome. Awesome. Well, welcome today to worship. Welcome to grace. And we are diving back in today to this Luke series and beginning a brand-new Subseries within that. So let me start today by asking you a question. Who or what is sitting on the throne of your heart today? Everyone I've ever known has some sort of consuming passion that really becomes the God of his or her life. What is that for you? I've known a number of people where that was some sort of drug, for instance. They would do anything, lie, cheat, steal, run over anyone, betray anyone, stab anyone in the back in order to get another hit of Coke or OxyContin or whatever that drug is of choice. And that becomes the functional God, the passion. Their life. I've known a number of people through the years where I think you could honestly say that that all consuming passion would be sex. Someone might call it uh, an obsession, a neurosis, perhaps a disease, some sort of abnormality in their life, but whatever you call it, it honestly is the all consuming passion. They're obsessed. With sexual pleasure and fulfillment. Now, there are all kinds of gods, little g gods, that can be on the throne of a person's heart. But the interesting thing is, some of them we wouldn't recognize as being dangerous, but they're just as dangerous, just as all consuming as those couple that I mentioned. We can even take things that are actually good in and of themselves, and we can make good things God things. We can actually have good things become the obsession of our life, and they take the place of God. And what I think is interesting is that that list of things, that consuming passion tends to change as we grow older through life. For a young person, it might be a gaming system, for instance, that he or she is consumed with. They think about it every waking moment of the day. They will go without eating, go without sleeping in order to play this game. It's this incredible passion. But in a few years, that God gets replaced with the God of a car. And that becomes the consuming passion. And then it becomes the God of a girlfriend or a boyfriend. And then maybe the God of college and all that goes with college life. And it's just all about that for a season of time. And that's the all-consuming passion on the throne of his or her heart. And then maybe it becomes all about the career. And they want to get a good career. And then it becomes all about A partner in life, getting a spouse, getting someone to do life with, and they can actually take the place of God when we allow them to sit on the throne of our heart. And then maybe it becomes about a house and getting that home that's just perfect, that's just ideal, that you're so proud of. And I know many people where that is the consuming passion and somehow that fills this niche in their life. That really only God ought to fill. And as the years go by, it might become the God of retirement, (laughs) where we think about, oh, it's all about developing that portfolio so I can have a comfortable retirement. Or maybe even the God of grandchildren. And it's all about those grandkids. And as we go through life, the gods seem to change. The great theologian John Calvin put it like this. He said, the human heart is a factory of idols. And I believe he's absolutely right. But the problem is, when we have any of these things sitting on the throne of our heart, we miss out on the abundant life that God really designed for us. And that is a serious issue. So we kick off today a new little sub-series within the Gospel of Luke that we're calling Jesus the Radical Transformer. And what we're going to do here, just for four weeks, is look at some amazing stories of transformation. People who met Jesus and had their lives changed. Now, we've already seen a lot of that, haven't we, in the Gospel of Luke? Jesus meets people, their lives are forever changed. But these stories, I think, are very powerful And what you'll notice is that all of them have to do with radical transformation. You could say that today's story is the rejection of that radical transformation that is offered. But here's also what we're going to see in these stories. That every time we encounter Jesus in this way and there's an offer of transformation as it were on the table, we have to make a choice. God gives us the dignity of that. Now, in the evangelical Christian tradition, we tend to focus quite a bit on choice. In fact, uh, we ask people straightforwardly, are you saved, brother? Are you saved, sister? And rightly so. And I think in... Those of us who've grown up in what you might call revivalistic traditions, we really had that emphasis put on, do you know the moment? Do you know the exact moment that you crossed over? And some of us do. 8.30 p.m., Gum Springs Baptist Church. Father's Day, June the 16th, 1974. From the 11th pew back to the second stanza of number 192 in the Baptist hymnal, Put Your Hand in the Nail-Scarred Hand. Are you kidding me? You talk about knowing the moment, but many of us don't know the exact moment. Because we didn't grow up in a tradition that encouraged us toward that crisis of, are you going to have that moment where you can mark it? And know that's the that's the time. And yet, I know many people who cannot pinpoint that moment, but they're just as saved as I am. The important thing is not that you know the precise minute that happened. The important thing is that you know that it happened. Are you hearing me today? The important thing is that you know that you belong to Christ. That you've made that critical decision to be his follower as he's granted you the faith and the grace to do so. But what we often do not emphasize enough is that following Christ is not just... A choice, is it, it is a continual series of choices. And every day that goes by, we have choices to make. Every single day. Are we going to allow an idol to sit on the throne of our heart? Whether it's a spouse, or a career, or a relationship. Whether it's some obsession that we have. Maybe even our own health. Our own body can become a god. And we pursue these things, and they stand in the place of the living God. And we have to make those choices every single day. Well, in Luke 18, Jesus encountered a rich, young ruler. Now, if you've read this text already, you know Luke doesn't call him exactly that, does he? He just says, a certain ruler. But we know from the synoptic gospels, if we compare, we know that he was Young. Later, we find out in Luke's account here that he was indeed wealthy. But Jesus was about to help him understand that there was something in his life that was competing for the throne. And this is such a poignant message for all of us because every day we have those choices to make. Are we going to allow something or someone to edge God off the throne, functionally speaking, in our lives? So let's pick the story up and see what we can learn from this amazing encounter of promised transformation. Verse 18, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher... What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I want you to know if you're new, perhaps, to the Bible or maybe to the Christian faith, this is a very popular passage. In fact, I I think if I were listing maybe 20 of the most formative passages that have gotten the most of focus throughout 20 centuries of Christian history, this would probably be in the top 25 passages in all the Bible. So many major, major life moments have happened with people by reading this passage and being inspired by it to make a decision to follow Christ. But this rich young ruler gets a lot of bad rap almost every time. Millions of sermons have been preached on this passage and almost always he gets a bad rap. But let's give him a little bit of credit here up front. He's at least focused on an important topic. Would you agree? I mean, if you've got something you want to ask Jesus, you don't want to ask him, what's the weather going to be like tomorrow, or what does he think about his favorite ball team? You want to ask an important question, and there's nothing more important than eternal life. I hope you understand, if this world is the only focus you have, oh my, my, How sad. Because you, my friend, are going to live 99.99999% of your life somewhere else. It's the life after this life that is far more important even than this life, as important as it is. And so let's give him credit. He's asking about that. But there's something, even in the way he asks the question, that gives us a clue as to what he is trusting in. Notice what must I do, what must I do? Most of us as humans are continually wanting to be the source of our own salvation. But if we could be good enough, if we could really earn it, then if we could be our own Savior, then it begs the question, what's Jesus doing on that cross, right? I mean, why do we need Jesus as Savior if we can do something to really earn it or deserve it? By the way, this is one of the reasons that it's difficult, I think, for so many highly successful people to come to faith in Christ, because when you're a really successful person, and you've had so many accolades and accomplishments, you begin to feel that you can do these things, even salvation, on your own. And it's hard to admit your weakness. It's hard to get that God, little g, off the throne of your heart, especially when that God is you. That's one of the hardest cases of all. When the God on the throne of your heart is you, very hard to remove that God. It's hard, especially for highly driven people, to admit that we can't make it on our own. TV personality Bill Maher, when he was talking about the crucifixion, said, I just don't get the thought of someone else cleansing me of my sins. It's ridiculous. I don't need anyone to cleanse me. I can cleanse myself. We think we can earn it. We think we can be good good enough. I really admire the multi, multi multi-billionaire Warren Buffett. He's done so many good things. Seems to be a fairly humble man by many accounts and He has led a movement, this is one of the things I appreciate, of helping other multi-billionaires to start giving away some of their money and become more benevolent. But I think we see a window into his soul in this statement. He said there are a lot of ways, when being questioned about why he's giving away billions of dollars to charity, he said there are a lot of ways to get to heaven, but this is a pretty great way. Again, what's he saying? I'm good enough. I'm successful enough. I can earn it on my own. What a trap we fall into when we start thinking that way. Jesus said in verse 19, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I wonder, I wish we could pause there and then pack that because I wonder if there is an implication there to this man of, hey, I'm more than you think I am. Verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. So Jesus there just ticks off a few of the Ten Commandments. And then this guy says, All these I have kept since I was a boy. (laughs) Again, a window into his soul. It's like Jesus is trying to spoon feed him the right answer here. But he shows again kind of what he's trusting in. What he should have said is, you know what? Those are high standards. Nobody can keep those, right? I mean, I don't know anyone who's ever kept them fully. Uh, I certainly haven't. I've broken them in thought or deed over and over again. But instead, he says, no, I've kept these. It seems that he's trusting a great deal in his own morality. And I would say to those of you who've grown up in the church, beware of that trap. Those of us who've grown up in Sunday school, memorizing the verses, getting a gold star on our little... Sunday school quarterly, maybe getting perfect attendance, badges, and that kind of thing. We can fancy ourselves as being these really good people, and we're trusting sometimes in our own morality to save us. We can start thinking we're morally superior because we're good rule keepers, quite frankly. And it's you that I'm concerned about the most. Because it's religious people who have the hardest time really accepting the gospel. Trust me on that. I've had so many conversations with so many who fancy themselves as really good, morally superior, better than the guy down the street, better than that other guy over here in the club they belong to who's done this and that and the other thing, better than that woman over there who's really putting on a good front, but she's very rotten inside, they say. And if you're a religious rule keeper and you see yourself as superior, you don't smoke, drink, or chew or run with girls who do. Let me tell you that right now. It's you I fear for the most. I wonder if you'll ever be able to accept the gospel, the real gospel. That we're saved by grace through faith alone, not by works. Well, this guy has tremendous confidence in his own morality. I've kept all these since I was a boy. I wonder if some of his old girlfriends would agree. But he says, no, I'm a good guy. But in verse 22, Jesus takes aim now at the God, little g, the primary God that sits on the throne of this man's heart and drives him. When Jesus heard this, He said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And when he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Now, I alluded earlier that this is one of the very popular stories in the Bible, and it is. So much has been written about this through 20 centuries of Christian history. But when many people read this story, they think it's a story about money. It's not. This is a story about idolatry. This man's problem is not that he had a lot of money. It's that the money had him. And if you've been at Grace for a while, I hope you already know what I'm about to say yet again another time. I hope you've picked this message up through many years now. In Scripture, money is amoral. Amoral. You say, Pastor, what do you mean? It is neither inherently good nor inherently bad. The question that money always raises is, is it serving you or are you serving it? Because money makes a wonderful servant, but a horrible master. And money had mastered this man. He had turned it into a false god in his life. And by the way, one of the reasons I think Jesus says so much about money and possessions in Scripture is that in my opinion, money, perhaps more than any other false god, has the ability to become a God substitute in our lives. And you know, money makes these false promises. Have you ever noticed that? For instance, there's a false promise that money makes that you can be happy through money. It will make you happy. Ask the average person, what do you really want in life? What does success look like for you? And if you talk a little while, they'll usually say, well, I just want to be happy, you know. To me, that would be success, brother. Let Let me just tell you, if I could just be happy, that would be success for me. And then if you probe a little more, eventually they'll mention dollars and cents. And they honestly believe that if I just had more of this, then, more money, then I would really be happy. And so... Money makes the false promise of happiness. But money also makes the false promise of significance. Money can make me significant. And when we talk about people's worth, we usually quickly turn to their net worth. We value people by their valuables. But only God can make you significant. Not accomplishments, not effort, not accolades, not degrees. As wonderful as these things may be in and of themselves, they cannot give you significance. And when we think that money is going to do that, look at what we're doing. We're ascribing to money a divine attribute. Only God can give significance. But we think money can do it. A third false promise money makes is security. Foolishly, we think if I just have enough, I'll get all the insurance lined up that I need. I'll touch all the right bases. I'll pack this money away here, and I will be secure. It won't matter if I get sick. The hospital bills will all be paid for. I, If I have enough money, oh, I'll finally get that security that I'm looking for. Now you say, but Pastor Rex, how do we know? How do we know if we've allowed money or anything else to begin to nudge God, the true God, off the throne of our heart? Well, can can I just offer a few questions maybe you could ask? One, I would ask you, what do you sacrifice for the most? What do you spend the most time and energy on? Is it making money or something else? Second, I I would ask myself, what do you worry about the most? Are most of your worries and fears revolving around finances and getting all those ducks in a row, gas prices, retirement funds, house payments, escalating medical bills? Or what do you dream of? In other words, as you dream, well, what do you tend to fixate on? What gives you the most joy and hopefulness about the future? For many people, when they dream, they dream of things that can be bought with money. And, it, and if that's what our hope is fixed on, again, it's so ephemeral. It's so fickle. It, it's like cotton candy, You get a little taste, and then it's just gone, and there's no substance there. So what do you dream of the most? And finally, what controls you? Honestly, when it comes to basic decision making, if God says, now this is what you should do, but money says, no, you can't do that, what you decide to do in that case reveals your God. So here's the bottom line. God alone deserves to sit on the throne of our hearts. He alone. He alone deserves all of our glory, all of our commitment, our life, our soul, our everything. And I say to you today with all the kindness and yet all the sobriety of my heart, if God is not on the throne of your heart, you are either under The passive or the active wrath of God. Ooh, what do you mean by that? The passive wrath of God is where God says, oh, so you want to pursue that? You want that to become your all-consuming passion? You want that to be the God, little g, on the throne of your heart? And God says, okay, I'll let you do that. And he just gives us over. That's a phrase that appears in Scripture three times in Romans 1. He gives us over to the desire of our heart, and says, let's let that run its course, and you'll eventually see that that's an utter waste of a life. That's the passive wrath of God. But the active wrath of God is where God begins to actively take some things away from us in an effort to turn our attention back towards him. But the problem with all idolatry, and that's what this story is all about, is that we're ultimately putting our trust in something other than Jesus. We're looking to something other than Je- to Jesus for salvation. So let me be very personal and ask you, is that possibly, possibly true of you today? Maybe you're feeling lonely, for instance, and you're looking to a relationship for salvation. Or maybe today you're here, you're listening to this, and and you're really empty inside, honestly, and you're looking to possessions for salvation. Or perhaps you're depressed, and you're honestly just looking to food for salvation, to try to numb the pain and medicate it with food or Perhaps you've been rejected. I know it's so painful to be rejected, but you're now looking to pornography for salvation. Because there in that fantasy world, you don't get rejected. Or maybe you're angry, really filled with anger. And you're looking to alcohol. For salvation. Or maybe you feel purposeless, like there's no real purpose to life, but you're looking to work for salvation. You're letting your work become your God, little g. And it's just consuming your life because otherwise you feel no purpose whatsoever. Or maybe you're just filled with anxiety today and you're looking to money to try to be your salvation. I'll tell you, if you've traded, if you've traded any of those things for the true living God on the throne of your life, that is just not a good trade. It's just not worth it. I have two books in my library by Millard Fuller. I don't know if you recognize the name, but he and his wife Linda started the organization Habitat for Humanity. And it's a really provocative story. But it's interesting that by the age of 29, Millard Fuller was a millionaire, back when a million dollars meant a lot more than it does today. And he had bought his wife Linda everything that money could possibly buy, everything she could want. But one day, Millard came home from work and he found a note from his wife that she had left him. He was devastated. He went looking for her. He tried to track her down any way he could. Finally, through a long process, he found her at a hotel in New York City. And Millard and Linda Fuller talked that night into the wee hours of the morning. And she said to him that everything, Millard, we've given our lives to has just left me empty. My heart is so cold, cold. Her spirit was burned out. She said she felt dead inside and wanted more than anything else just to live again. Even though they'd been successful by all the standards that the world uses. And so the two of them knelt there beside the bed in their hotel room. And they committed themselves to God. And they actually made the commitment that evening that they would spend the rest of their lives serving the poor and underserved people of the world. They made the commitment that they would give away everything they had and just sell even these expensive things they had and commit that money to serving the poor. The next Sunday, they went out and found the closest church they could find, and they went to worship. They wanted to thank God for this new start in life, this new commitment they made. And when they told the minister of their decision the pastor told them that such a radical decision was not necessary Millard writes these words he said the minister told us it was not necessary to give up everything for Jesus he just didn't understand we weren't giving up money and the things that money could buy we were giving up we were just giving up shortly after, they started the organization Habitat for Humanity. They gave up their old, empty, unsatisfying life for a life with Christ that was satisfying and full of meaning. That's a good trade. But this young man in our story made a horrible trade. He could have had eternal life in heaven, but instead he left it all for the rags of this world. But I want you to notice now the final verses in our text today because Jesus, I think, focuses in on his disciples and he wants to teach them and us a lesson that hopefully we will never lose. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I've never been to the Holy Land, believe it or not. My pastor friends can't believe that uh, because most of them go every year. Or have been multiple times, many of the friends I have. But I, just for lots of reasons, we've, we've not gone. Maybe someday we will. Boy, will I bore you with stories then about the Holy Land. I want to tell you. Yeah, when I was walking through the streets of Jerusalem, I'll never forget. It. But I understand, although I've never been there, that on the tours they will show you the big gates of the city and then over beside the large gates they'll show you a little tiny gate it's kind of low and cramped and small and they'll say that's the eye of the needle jesus was talking about that's the needle's eye right there and you don't want a camel if they strip off all the accoutrements All the baggage, anything he's carrying, and he gets down on his knees, he can barely get through that little needle's eye. And that's what Jesus was talking about. Well, that makes a quaint little heartwarming story. The only problem with that is there's not one shred of historical evidence that that little gate existed in the time of Jesus. Not a shred of evidence. It's good for tourists. It kind of makes a, a point of conversation. But that's not what Jesus was talking about, friends, at all. He was talking about a needle that you sew with. He's using a hyperbole here, which he often did. Is it, an, it is an intentional exaggeration to make a point. He's saying, this is impossible to do. It's just impossible. And you've got to admit... That riches do become a major obstacle for many people coming to Christ. It ought not be that way. The more we have, the more grateful we ought to be. And it doesn't have to be that way. Some of the finest Christ followers I know are very wealthy. Hear me today. Some of the finest Christians I know have a lot of financial resources. But let's face it. Money becomes an idol in the lives of a lot of people. And so Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this, verse 26, asked, who then can be saved? (laughs) Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. I don't know how the Lord's gonna do it. He may do it cell by cell, or he may expand the needle's eye in some way. But trust me, there's gonna be wealthy people in heaven, people who are wealthy down here. Abraham's gonna be there. He was one of the wealthiest men of his day, had unbelievable possessions, but he possessed his possessions. They did not possess him. The apostle Paul's gonna be there. Boy, you talk about a rich young ruler. He had the world by the tail, man. Life was going great. He was an aspiring leader. He had lots of wealth, and it was growing, and lots of influence, and his power was expanding. But one day, Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus Road, blinded him, and he came to faith in the living Christ. And later, Paul writes... I count everything as loss for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Rudyard Kipling made a statement once that is honestly one of my favorite quotes of all time. He said, someday you'll meet somebody who doesn't care much for possessions or status and then you'll realize how poor you really are. It doesn't have to be, it ought not to be, but let's face it, often wealth is an obstacle to the transforming power of Christ Peter says in verse 28, Peter said to him, we've left all, we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. That's the kind of trade God wants to make with you. From the rags of this world, ...to the real riches. A little five-year-old girl, much to her mother's chagrin, spent her entire savings of $2 to buy a little imitation pearl necklace in a little dime store. And she was so proud of that necklace. She thought it made her look so mature and so pretty. And so she wore it everywhere. Her mother had to make her take it off when she was taking a bath so she wouldn't have a little green ring around her neck. But, oh, she loved that little imitation pearl necklace, $2 worth. One evening when her dad was reading the Bible story to her, he said, Jenny, do you love me? She said, yes, dad. He said, well, I want you to give me that pearl necklace. He said, no, daddy, you can have the white horse in my collection, but not the pearl necklace. A couple of nights later, he said, Jenny, do you love me? Dad, I love you so much. I I want you to give me that pearl necklace. She said, Dad, you can have my favorite doll, but, but not the necklace. A few nights later, she was fighting back the tears, and he noticed when he went to read the Bible story to her that she had something clenched in her little fist. She opened it up and said, Here, Dad, you can have the necklace. And then her dad reached immediately into his pocket and pulled out a velvet-lined box from a very elite jewelry store, and he gave her an authentic pearl necklace that he had had the whole time for. He just wanted her to be willing to give up the dime store stuff. And your heavenly father is the same way. He's waiting for you and me to give up the cheap things, the idols of this world, so he can give us the eternal treasure that can never be taken away. Would you bow your head with me, please? I wonder if there's an idol on our heart today, sitting on the throne of our life, that's taken the place of God. Is God probing and pointing that out to you right now? You know what it is, don't you? God is so faithful in showing us areas where we need transformation. And if he's putting his finger right now and prompting you about something that honestly has become the all-consuming passion and taken the place of Jesus in your life, would you just right now offer that idol up to him and say, God... By your strength and your grace, I want to be done with that. Would you help me get rid of the dime store stuff, the cheap idols of this world, so you can give me the true treasure? That's a good trade. God, help us to follow you fully and to enjoy the eternal treasures that you alone can bring. In Jesus' name. Amen.